Okay. We think. If I got two thumbs, I can go. Is what you're telling me. We hope. Okay. Well, here we'll give it. We'll give it a good shot. Uh, really fast. Uh, we have Rosh Hashanah on September 26th and 27th. So there's our shot for the rapture trumpets. If you hear a trumpet, it's not me. So uh, you could tell, I'm sure, really fast if it was my sound. So we're. It's an exciting time. Every time one of these feast days comes by, we need to be excited. Don't be caught not watching, as you as you're aware. Okay, here we go. September 25th, 2022, lecture discussion number 182 on the book of Joel, Daniel, Revelation, Ecclesiastes, Job, Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 3, and Genesis 15. That's pretty much where we've been for quite some time now. And welcome, therefore, to another Sunday where no one can specifically address the exact location of the intrepid, intrepid, sorry, Cliffsidian, or is it Cliffsidian? Have we decided a traveling van that we are here? The previous uh, lectures that we have done have divided up the cliffside people, the troops, and scattered them all over the place, to and fro. Uh, I, I have done everything from hybridization to wide dramatic theodicy. Uh, John from Pennsylvania, he's, he is on to something again, as usual. The, and the why of, of God. God reveals himself in typology. Why does he do that is the question ultimately that we're dealing with. So those subjects are diverse and spread out way. And, and I know what you're thinking because I am the vaunted HDRP. It's my job to know what you're thinking. Goodall's incompleteness theorems notwithstanding, you're asking this omnipresent question that we get all the time. How do we, and by we, I mean me, how do we reassemble this disoriented, adrift cliffside infantry that is everywhere? And I have letters and, and things from you folks out there, and you are everywhere. You've gone all kinds of places. How do I gather you back into place? <laughs> what... We're now the reciprocal of on, onward Christian soldiers, you know, marching as to war. It's, it, what, what represents us more representative of, of the cliffside current status would be onward, backward, sideways, circinated soldiers. Can we really call this marching? And uh, that's what we're doing. Anyway, how do we resuscitate our attack the same way we always do pinky, right? We ask more questions. That's how you do it, because more questions is unceasingly the answer. And 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 yes, I know, duh, many of you are screaming at their computer screens right now. How is it that questions are answers? Or, or what convoluted logic system is this, is what you're saying. And uh, that's perfectly appropriate. And I hear it all the time. Whatever happened to less is more, they say to me quite a bit. Can you shorten this lecture series? When you give me two weeks to prepare, guess how many pages I can get? I can get a lot more pages. But so whatever happened to less is more is a comment that I receive quite a bit. And obviously less is not more. More is more. Less is less. It's basic math. And there's always math, so use your phones. All of that leads to this, a question that came through book face tube. And this was the question, and you're just going to groan and fall on the ground and writhe. It'll be really hilarious. I wish I could see you all. But here's the question. It was this way. I'm reading it exactly as it was given. Can Pastor Chronister explain irresistible versus resistible grace in in regard to the Armenian Calvinist debate? So... So that was the question. Can Pastor Chronister explain this? And, And can I... Can I, the lovable HTRP, explain the conflicts of the Armenian and the Calvinist positions? Can I do it? Well, of course I can. It's a piece of pie, easy as cake. I can explain it. That's not the problem. What's the problem? What's the issue? The issue is, is uh, the contention is, is, how long will it take for me, the adorable HTRP, to do this? <laughs> to ex- you got to explain the Armenian Calvinist ideologies. Notice I said ideologies. Plural there. Note the plural. The positions. Note again the plural are extensive. There is no singular Armenian position and singular Calvinist position. There are positions. This battlefield is entrenched. It's been going on since 450 years ago. 
So this is a battlefield that has all kinds of craters. They're predominant here. It's been a war going on, blasting each other for centuries. So how long does it take to do that? And to make the matters uh, more so encyclopedic, there are multiple delineations of both factions. In other words, Calvinists will disagree with Calvinists. You can't get the Calvinists to agree with each other. And you can't get the Armenians. They'll also differ with Armenianism. There exists no purity within either encampment. And as usually is the case, individuals will migrate uh, and purloin the positional concepts of the other side. So they'll be Calvinists and then they'll become Armenian and then they'll become Armenian and they'll steal stuff from the Calvinists and add it to the Arm and they go back and forth. So again, there's no purity within either encampment. And they'll modify as they so will. And thus the uniformity of the positions has been compromised to the point, yea, a point, approaching elimination of the positions as they were originally constructed. What's that? Yeah. <laughs> uh, to rephrase that a bit, there is no concrete structure to grab a hold of anymore. Essentially, whenever somebody announces that he, she is an adherent to the Calvinist doctrine, it's going to be necessary to investigate further. And similarly, with the Arminianist teachings, you've got to find out exactly what they think is Calvinism now or what they think is Arminianism. And fortunately... Uh, Mindy from Anchorage. And yes, this is the same two birds, Mindy, that wanted to know about the two birds in Genesis 15, which took us what? We're still doing it. Okay? But fortunately, Mindy from Anchorage, uh, two birds, Mindy, do, and don't reflexively boo her. I mean, I know, I know why you would, uh, and I'm sure she's expecting it. But what she did is she sequestered the irresistible and the resistible grace from the 450-year-old debate. Uh, and, and leaving aside many other issues. John Calvin died 1564, and Jacobus Arminus, Arminus, he died 1609. So that's where it, it began with those two. And now how does this subject intersect with Bill the Cow's inquiry as to the Nephilim and the Phylums, the, the, the Plady Hellman, Hellman uh, the Mollusca, the Athropoda, the Inclytodomata? How does that fit together? And all of these, I've condensed, I've condensed those phylums down to uh, tapeworms and ants and, and bees and sponges and spiders and jellyfish and all of that stuff. Uh, what, what, what Bill the Cow wanted to do, he, he would designate most of those, if not all of those, as biological machinery. And so now we have the theological implications of biological machinery. If you decide something is a biological entity, but it has no capability beyond that, then you open a door that you may or may not wish to go through. So how does Two Birds Mindy fit with Bill the Cow? Because they do. Oh, I should ask you this question. Is everyone who writes or calls Cliffside named after an animal? Like we're in some 1940s John Wayne Western, you know, where everybody has an animal name. Oh. Did you finally get that good? It just seems like it's true, but it's not. There are some without animal names here. Yeah, there's Supper Dave. Yeah, that's not an animal. Well, maybe. Anyway, Bill the Cow included the characteristics or the nature, if you will, of the intermediate state. He also want, he wanted to know about biological machinery, if we can do that. And then he also wanted to take this characteristics of the, of the intermediate state as it applied to children who died from any cause. Do they experience growth is where we, we began to discuss that two weeks ago. Do they advance? Is there advancement in a child much like there is here in our environment? Is there an advancement in the intermediate state of them? Um, do they do they learn? Are they exposed to the sin on the earth? Can they see the sin on the earth? That question I get all the time. Can they see me? Most people believe that it's true. You always see somebody say, my father is watching this particular. I'm doing this for my mother and she's watching me. Can they watch us? Uh, obviously, the angels are in the third estate, the third heaven, correct? Do they see mankind? Absolutely, they do. They're watchers. Can the disembodied intermediate state condition of those who have passed, can they do likewise? How is their free will impacted? That's another issue that Bill the Cow was interested in. Clearly, Satan has access to the to the uh, third heaven. Does does he? 
how much of his access is limited? Does, does he is he given permission, for example, to bring his reviling accusations? And again, angels watch and they rejoice and they despair. And, and are the souls in heaven awaiting their new bodies? Are they also watching? And again, a popular view. You got Abraham and the rich Pharisee and Lazarus, right? They could see each other. They could talk. So to make that, to beat that in there as much as I can. Can Satan now, who is against the goodness of God, can he bring that perspective into the new city of Jerusalem? And again, we asked a couple of weeks ago, where are these children? Where are the saved souls? Where are they at? Are they just sitting in a heavenly system or are they inside the new city of Jerusalem? Does Satan have access to them is the question. Do they hear along the lines of Job 1 and Job 2? Remember, God gave Satan permission to attack Job 1 and 2. How much permission does Satan have to attack in the heavenly estate? Again, Job 1, Job 2 says he has a lot of permission. His entire demonic army is up there with him. What, how, do, how do you think the conflict between the angelic realm goes? It's probably incredibly intense in ways we can never even imagine. Do those disembodied believing souls that are there, minds, consciousness, can they witness all of this? That's the question. So how does God administrate, uh, confront this possibility, or if it's not a possibility, a condition, if it's there, does God put a hedge around the people in the new city of Jerusalem? Uh, and that's Job 1, 9 through 10. God put a hedge, according to Satan, around Job, and that, that eliminated his free will. And you can see how Bill's question is, is, how do these children, how are they exercising free will? Uh, and if you conclude that God does put a hedge around them, uh, has he removed their free will as it applies to the aforementioned def- uh, hedge definition? God versus Satan, Job 1, on the, de- on the definition of hedge. We have to figure out what that hedge is, how it functions. Is it in the heavenly estate? Is it in the new city of Jerusalem? And obviously accountability and adversity, Psalm 106, Psalm 1013, Job 311 through 19, Hebrews 927, are now pressing themselves into the discussion. You can look those up. I'll repeat them again. Uh, I'll just help you out here really fast. Satan believes he will not face adversity. He will not have accountability. He will not have judgment. He believes that that's not going to happen. He has either convinced himself or he hasn't, but he has certainly convinced others. And Hebrews 9.27 is uh, upon the death of man. Judgment, boom, right? Judgment. Uh, So, those those... Those uh, passages are part of this discussion intimately. Okay, how does irresistible grace introduce itself into that mess that I just threw at you? It's an equation. There's always math. So, uh, well, we should begin by agreeing on a definition of irresistible grace. You have to have a definition. And you hope that the person you're talking to has the same definition. What are the chances of that? Oh, almost completely nil. But some pieces of it might be the same, so we can at least administrate that. Okay, so that's something difficult to achieve, to find that definition. Irresistible grace is an elusive target. The goalposts are moving. They've been moving for 450 years, so you can't really nail it down very well, which means that we're going to be left with the definition of irresistible grace that comes from what? If you said me... You're right. It's going to be mine. I'm sorry about that. Not really fake sorry. So it's my definition of irresistible grace that we're going to deal with today. And the phrase of irresistible grace may have occurred with Augustine back in the late 300s. Because uh, in the 4th century, Augustine of Hippo is a sainted Catholic priest. You probably know that. Thus you will find gratia irresistibilis ensconced in Catholic doctrines. And you need to know that when you get into this discussion. With that said, Two Birds Mindy is correct. Irresistible grace is actually mostly a proposal of Calvinism, but you cannot subtract the Catholic particle of all of this. So there's an alliance of sort between Calvinism and the Catholic Church in this particular area. First obvious question, is grace, God's grace, irresistible? Can you resist it? Yes or no? They say it's irresistible. Is that true? 
if it is irresistible, how, if it's, if it's so, how did this become so? Why did it become so? Because if God has irresistible grace and he is pushing it into this uh, salvation system, he has included it. That would be a better yeah, word there. Why did he do that? We have to always ask why. For example, did Adam and the woman, you might say Eve, but it's the woman until he renames her Eve, the mother of all the living, does she possess, does both of them possess irresistible grace? Has irresistible grace, did they experience it? And if one answers yes, they had irresistible grace, then you have to ask the question that comes immediately after that. Why were there two trees? So what does irresistible grace and two trees have to do with each other? I'll try to explain as we go along. The tree of life and the tree of certain death are placed by the Lord God Almighty himself in the garden. Ultimately, that garden was protected by a hedge. And here comes his hedge issue again. Okay, slow down. I'm leaping way ahead. Let's back up. The Catholic Church asserts that you must be Catholic to be saved. If you're not Catholic, you're not saved. Only Catholics will be in the new city of Jerusalem. All others will be cast into the lake of fire. There's a disclaimer. There's an addendum. They say those who are ignorant of Christ through no fault of their own will be excused from the lake of fire. That's their caveat. Obviously, that statement or that belief is problematic. Uh, for one, the Old Testament saints were not Catholic. So you've eliminated David, Solomon, Elijah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah. Can I go on? They weren't Catholics. They were Jews. They were believing Jews. The Calvinistic, uh, I should say hyper-Calvinism, somewhat admits to a similar concept as the Catholic position. And you have to ask again, why do people want this position? Why do they think it's true? Well, there's universalism that thinks uh, uh, that everyone does go. And that's, that's out of, as you would know, that's out of the Mormon church, for example. It's been around for centuries, but it's, it was promoted the most by the Mormon church in our life, or in our era. But anyway, the, the, the Calvinistic position is they proclaim that mankind cannot choose Jesus Christ as, his, as the Savior, as your Savior. You cannot choose it. Uh, in other words, and, and that, that's called total uh, inability. You have no ability to choose Christ. Therefore, mankind, by this concept, has no free will whatsoever. It results, it resulting in only those pre-selected by God being the citizens of the New Jerusalem. That's the position of the Calvinistic positions, or the Calvinistic thought processes. <coughs> okay, let me rephrase that. Let me rephrase the obvious. Calvinism declares that man is unable to choose belief in Christ because man is bound by sin and is thus in an impossible state with respect to salvation and truth. Note. Salvation and truth are a person. That person is Jesus Christ. So they fit in that way as well. The affirmation then that I just gave you, that I can read it again. Calvinism declares that man is unable, total inability, to choose belief in Christ because man is bound by sin and thus is in an impossible state with respect to salvation and truth and free will. The affirmation then again results in no will. And that's called essentially irresistible grace. God has predestined, he chooses those who have no choice to be saved. You have no choice in your salvation at all. He chooses you to be saved. And of course, correspondingly, God has chose, chosen for the lake of fire those who have also no choice, no hope for salvation. Which again is problematic. I hope you recognize it. John Calvin himself in his writings referred to this double predestination, is what it's called, as a dreadful and horrible decree of Scripture. I've said hundreds of times in my so-called career, if you have a position that says that the Bible in some particular aspect is dreadful and horrible, uh, then you're in danger. You need to be very careful. Now, I understand that, that those who go into the lake of fire, that is a dreadful and horrible place to go. 
but that is judgment and accountability for something that is not, uh, how do I put it? I don't want to be disrespectful. That is not cavalier. So, John Calvin went on to say that no one can deny that God's omniscience causes this particular doctrine of, of Calvinism to be true. And again, let's be really fair here. Keep in mind, this was 450 years ago. And note the fidelity of the Catholics and the atheistic evolutionists and John Calvin to the proclamation that God did not give free will to humanity. They all agree. Again, I'm suggesting that you need to notice that. And he not only did not give it to, to humanity, he, gave, he did not give it to angels, and he did not give any aspect of it to animals. Everything is predestined. Everything is. And you will hear the physicists say that all the time. Okay? And specifically, this is to, to make it to narrow it down to where two birds Mindy wanted to be, or Mindy two birds. Which one is it? Is it two birds Mindy or is it Mindy two birds? I think it's, it's got to be the latter, don't you agree? to be consistent with the 1940s Westerns. Anyway, this is, this is specific to the free will to believe God. Genesis 15, 6, John 11, 25. And, and I should add Albert Einstein to this conspiracy, which includes 90% of the quantum physics community. Free will is an illusion. They spray that everywhere they can. They, cons- they continuously and conspicuously chant that. And me thinks it's wise to be suspicious of these quite strange bedfellows. We have the Calvinists, we have the Catholics, we have the the atheists, the evolutionists, and we have the which all incorporates the physics community. All of them believe there is no free will. So uh, I, I would offer this bewarement. Is there such a thing as bewarement? Bewareness. If you add "nus" to a word, it becomes a word. <coughs> Beware if you discover praise coming from those who hate God. Romans 1, 28 and 30. When the people who are praising you are the, are the representatives of Romans 1, 28 through 30, you should be suspicious because this is quite strange beds, bedmates, bedmates that you have. You also, you should always be wary when you're in agreement with the rabid a rabbit, I'm sorry, atheist. And Calvinist was aware of Augustine. He couldn't have anticipated, however, the atheistic Darwinian physicists. But that's where we are today. And I give him some dispensation for that. It may have changed his mind. All of you have already noticed that if man is in this total inability state, then God is responsible for what? That's right. And if he's responsible for sin, then he's responsible for evil either through direction or by apathy, which is the blasphemy of the, of the Exodus 17, 1-7, where he finally says to Israel, is God among you or not? But they accused him of bringing the children, the animals, and themselves out of Egypt for the sole purpose of murdering every one of them. That's what they said about him. Now, would a hyper-Calvinist disagree with that statement? That would be my, my first initial thought. Next obvious questions that I have here. Did God give his free will to angels, humanity, and animals? You've heard me ask that before. He has free will. God has it. Did he give it to anyone or did he keep it for himself? The Catholic and the Calvinist position is, is that he kept it for himself and did not give it to anything but himself. Doesn't, nothing has free will but him. Is that true? Is that your position? How is it that God's omniscience is not causation of the existence of evil? Because if, if you believe omniscience is the causation of the existence of evil then you're going to run up against me where I say his omniscience is not. So how is it that it's not causation? Did God intentionally create a being with only the facility to be evil? Now, remember Bill the cow. Because he said, essentially, did are the Nephilim only equipped with the facility for evil? And this is the cam, can't, the, 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 this is the can of tapeworms that is irresistible grace and total inability. Now, allow me to bring forward the Armenian can of maggots. Because they got their own can. 
Jacobus Arminus came along. Now, I should say this. Well, I probably... Arminus was a former Calvinist. He was taught through the Calvinist positions. But he came along. He began to question it. It's always good to question what you think you believe. Work out your salvation, right? That has nothing to do with working for salvation. That has everything to do with trying to understand how your salvation came to be. It's a completely different process. But Jacobus Arminus, I'm sorry, came along and announced that Christ was unwilling to secure his grace. One says that the grace is irresistible and you have no ability, total inability. The other one says that Christ was unwilling to cement his grace. That your belief in Christ, his saving grace, Christ's saving grace is forever subject to one's whimsical impulses. So who has the power here? One says God has all the power. The other one says God has none of the power. That's your collision. It's fantastically interesting. Okay? And again, Arminus was a former Calvinist, so he understood the Calvinist positions inside and out. And he taught that salvation is tenuous and it's in constant jeopardy to being lost or discarded. So, in effect, this position concludes that God, Jesus Christ is God, being omniscient, because Jesus Christ is omniscient, did not provide a mechanism that ensured the believing in Christ would hold fast to so great a salvation. Hebrews 2, 3. Genesis 15, 8 through 9. And again, Genesis 15, 8 through 9, it's Abraham's incredible question and Christ's answer, the take me. And the Arminus position is that Christ did not anticipate, how's that for a word, that we would lose all the salvation that he gave us. Because we're idiots. Well, not only would we lose it, we would throw it away. And Christ didn't, didn't think of that, apparently. That would have to be your logic. Or he did it intentionally. He intentionally produced a salvation system by which a tremendous amount of people would discard it. And I will say this, salvation that is unwarranted is not salvation. It's only merely a temporal condition awaiting exposure that, is, that ultimately is condemnation. Because if salvation is not secure, here is the truth. No one would be saved. Because we do not have the capacity to save ourselves or hold on to that salvation. God is therefore being accused again. What's he being accused of? If he has given you salvation, but you can't keep it, then what is it? Is it salvation? No, it's not. You can't keep it or you won't keep it. It's the same thing. If you constantly come in and out. I used to ask the question when I began this debate many, many years ago when I was a younger man, had a deeper voice, and my pants and shirts fit. I used to say, if you can get rid of your salvation, how many times can you do that? And if you can get your salvation back, how many times can you do that? Millions? Something that, that is, is that inconsistent, that's side, side your soul. Something that is that back and forth, the windshield wipers. Then, then is it really salvation or is it just some kind of mess? And if it's, you can all agree, I think you can, that this cannot be called salvation. This system. So if it's not salvation, then what is Christ? Because he says it is, what he's doing is salvation. And if you say that you can lose it, then what have you said about him? If you're right, and you're not, but if you were right, and that's a hypothetical. It's impossible, I know. And, and uh, they don't get it, and they don't want to get it. That's the problem. They remember I used to say, you were around at the time, I hope. People love to be wrong. They, they, they do. They love to be wrong, and there's not much you can do about that. So God, Jesus Christ, is being accused again of lying and murder because if his salvation isn't true salvation, it's just some windshield wiper thing you whap him back and forth. He can go anywhere. And, and remember, if you, if you die in some theologies, or if you're dying in some theology, somebody has to come out and put something on you before you die or you don't make it. Some process, some liturgy or some ceremonial system. So you are not saved. You could die in this position of sin and you will lose your salvation. And they can come out and they can transfer some mystical salvation that they possess, apparently, or they've been endowed with. Anyhow, 
We're back to Exodus 17, 1 through 7. God is being accused again of lying and murder. Numbers 23 through 6. If God lies and murders his people, he's the what? He's the author of evil. His plan of salvation, according to resistible grace, is a charade. Again, keep in mind the difference between irresistible grace and resistible grace. Because Arminus said that it's resistible and it's constantly and forever resistible. So you would have to make the case if you wanted to extrapolate that. Is it still resistible in the new city of Jerusalem? And, And I should say, by the way, everything that I have said about resistible grace and irresistible grace, for that matter, is inside of the premise of Satan's lie. All of it is there. Oh, once again, you've got to pay attention to who's lying next to you. Why they're saying, this is great. You're doing good. Be suspicious. Okay, if mankind, if finite, so I'm going to repeat this stuff to make sure you get it. If finite mankind can escape the infinite hand of God's salvation. So I have a finite man and I'm up against the infinite plan of God's salvation. If our salvation is dependent on our fragility, if it is attached to our finite condition, then no one is ever going to be saved by it and everyone is in the lake of fire and therefore what are we saying about God? Grace does not end at Joel 2.32, cry to be saved. That's a wonderful verse, Joel 2.32. Everyone who cries out for the name of Jesus Christ will be saved. It is an unconditional promise. And so grace does not end with the cry to be saved. Grace includes the everlasting life aspect. Grace is eternally secured. So grace encompasses all of that, not just the cry to be saved, but also the fact that once saved, you are saved. And both. And so now we got we got John Calvin and Jacobus Arminus. Let's ask this question: Are both of their positions wrong? And that might seem uh, to be disrespectful. People probably tune me out right there, uh, and they might say that's pretentious. That's a pretentious question. Uh, but but we, and by we, I, I mean everyone, all of believing humanity, we should always default. Psalm 36, 5 through 7, because that's your pattern. That is where God's mercy, God's faithfulness, God's righteousness, His judgments, His salvation, and His loving kindness are described for you. Those are His characteristics. Psalm 36, 5 through 7 is a presentation of the true character of the Creator God. All of mankind's ideologies and postulations and conjectures, they must fit with those things that I just listed, I'll list them again. God is merciful. He is faithful. He's righteous. His judgments are perfect. His salvation is amazing. And He is filled with loving kindness. Notice there's judgments and accountability there. So, and whatever thing you come up with, you have to lay it up against Psalm 36, 5-7 and see it has got to adhere to Psalm 36, 5 through 7, as well as Isaiah 55, 8 through 9, where he says, Hey, hey, I don't think like you. You think like you. I don't think like you. That's what he says to us. My thoughts are not my, your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. That's your first clue that when you have something that doesn't fit, you might be your thoughts and not his thoughts. Okay? So, Consequently, we should take, we should use Psalm 36, 5 through 7 and Isaiah 55, 8 through 9 and Luke 11, 9 through 13 as templates and, and overlay them. Take the irresistible grace concept and, and put it up against those scriptures and likewise for the resistible hypotheses and put them up against those scriptures and the easy question, how do they fit? How do they match out? How, how do they do? How do they match up? I'm saying to you that they don't. Luke 10, 11, 10 through 13, the Lord God Almighty Himself, Jesus Christ, says this. He says this. Ask. Ask, and it will be given to you. Why does He say ask? (laughs) 
ask and it shall be given to you. What is the asking process? Why is there an asking process? Is there an asking process? Some people would say there's no asking process. Why does he say it then? There's more obvious questions. What, what do you ask for? What is the it? That God will give you. Is it money? Is it fame? Is it power? Uh, I'll tell you really fast. Uh, fame, power, and money are curses. Especially fame. Is it a Janis Joplin Mercedes Benz? Is that what you're going to get? Jesus continues, seek and you will find. So look at what he says. Ask, it, seek. Find, absolutely. He keeps going. Find what? Seek for what? what? What's entailed in seek? Seeking things. We're told to ask and seek and we're going to be told to knock. What's involved in these acts of obedience? If you do these things, what are you doing mentally, emotionally? What are you doing? Seek for what again? Knock and it shall be open to you. Uh, knock, knock on what door? That's John 10.9, Revelation 3.20, Genesis 6.16, Genesis 7.16. The door is Jesus Christ. I am the door, he says. You're knocking on him. And these are just the introductions to the parable of the good father. That's what, what the context is of Luke 11. If a son shall ask for bread of any of you that is a father, and I'll make the case that the, the, the son is a child. So let me repeat it. If a child shall ask for bread of any of you that is a father, I'll make that case. The son is a child because of John 1.11, Galatians 3.26. Will he give him a stone? That's what Christ said. Or if... Or if he asks for a fish, give him a serpent. Or if... He asks for an egg. Will he offer him a scorpion? If you, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, your children, how much more shall the Father who is in heaven? How much more? Ask, it, knock, seek, if, how much more? I should interject that uh, many of your translations, uh, well, let me throw this in here first. Uh, how much more shall the Father who is in heaven? What's that all about? That's Matthew 6, 9, right? Notice that God is, that the Father is in heaven. So I should interject that many of your translations have your heavenly Father there. Your heavenly Father. The your is not in the text. It's in the italics in the King James Version. The King James wins again. Properly so. It's not in the text. The Greek word is ho. And it is a definitive article, the. How much more will the heavenly Father? That's the correct rendering. Anyway, how much more is how much more? The sinful, evil father will give bread. The heavenly father will give more. How much more than the bread will the heavenly father give to his children? That's the question. Now ask the reciprocal. Will the heavenly father, when a child is before him, cast that child into utter darkness? Will he do that? Does that comply with Psalm 35, 36, 5-7? Sorry. Will the heavenly Father, when that child is before him, cast the child into utter, utter darkness or the lake of fire? God will never give a scorpion or a serpent. What then is the definition of how much more? May I suggest how much more is eternal life in the new city of Jerusalem for all children? And I'll attach animals there as well. By no cause of their own, right? Numbers 8-7, for all the firstborn of the children and beasts are mine, he says. They're mine. Not yours. They're mine. Who decides where they go? He does. The Lord God makes this statement to Israel through Moses concerning the dedication of the Levites. 
Psalm 59 through 12 says, The mighty, says every beast of the forest, the mighty one, God the Lord says, Every beast of the forest is mine. I know all the birds. I know all the beasts. They're mine. Isaiah 49, 15 through 16. Now, this is a modern day scripture. If there's any scripture in Isaiah that applies to it today in the United States of America today, this is the one. 49, 15 through 16. God asks this question. Can a woman forget her suckling child? That she should not have compassion on the son of her womb? Yes, surely she may forget. Yet I will not forget, I will not forget, I will not forget any forsaken child. That's what he says. I can't say that enough. Matthew 19:14. Suffer little children, forbid them not to come to me. For such, the children, they're the kingdom of heaven. I'm not leaving those out. I won't forget a single one of them. You mothers can, can forget them all. I will not forget. That's what he said. God himself spoke those words. And there's your definition of how much more. I submit that Luke 11 through 13, Matthew 19, 14, Isaiah 49, 14 through 16, Psalm 36, 5 through 7, John 10, 9, Revelation 3, 20, Genesis 6, 16, Genesis 7, 16, Psalm 59 through 12, when gathered together, completely shred the irresistible grace premise. Just wipes it right off the map. As with the two trees of Genesis 2.9 and the take me of Genesis 15.9. How many verses can I keep going? Obviously, I could find and present hundreds more. Exodus 17.1 through 7. Is God among us or not? Isaiah 55.8.9. Psalm 8.86.11 through 13. And John 17.12. That's where Christ says to the Father. Now, this is a triune. This is the us, the Elohim, the one... The 322, the 126 of Genesis. Those whom you gave me, I have lost none except Judas. That's what he says. I says the son of perdition, but I put in Judas. Those whom you gave me, I have lost none except Judas. Think about that. Again, this is the triunity. This is a triune verse. Contemplate the implications, though, of losing Judas. He didn't lose the 11. He lost one. How does Christ lose one? How does that comply with your positions? I've lost none but Judas. How was Judas lost? What was the process that caused the, the losing of Judas? When did it happen? How much... How much, how much opportunity did Judas have? How much opportunity was he given before he was lost? Any? Was he given none? Why does Christ says, I have lost none except Judas? Anyway, let's back up and evaluate other logic here. If irresistible grace is correct, then free will is an illusion. If there is no such thing as free will, then some are citizens of the new city of Jerusalem. And others are cast into the lake of fire. Neither cohort had a choice. There's no choice. Again, there's no choice provision in the irresistible grace interpretation. God then dictates this by force. And if some are selected to eternal suffering in the lake of fire without hope, obviously who's among that group? Children. And that, of course, they believe. They absolutely believe that children are there. You've heard me call it daycare in the lake of fire. And that cannot be true. Children are not there. I will not forget makes that overwhelmingly clear. Next, we have a great white throne judgment. Why? If the outcome is preordained, why do we have a great white throne judgment? It's a fact of Scripture. Why do we have it? What's the point? Why a trial? If irresistible grace is, is, presents, irresistible grace is presenting the great white throne judgment to be a synthetic show trial, why would you have God do that? And if you have God doing that, what have you said about Him? You're back to accusing Him, 17, 7, 1 through 7 of, of Exodus. For whose benefit is this trial if it's not real? 
It's, this is a pretension. Is it for the angels? We're going to put on a trial for the angels because they don't know it's not real. But it makes no sense for anybody else. Why do angels rejoice over one sinner who repents, Luke 15.10, and God cries over the lost, Genesis 6.6. 6. Why? Jeremiah 14.7, God says, let my ears, I'm sorry, can't read my own writing. Let my eyes run with tears. That's what I did. I went with ears instead of tears and flipped it over for eyes. Let my eyes run with tears day and night. Let them not cease. That's what God says. Why is he crying day and night and they never cease? How long does never for an infinite being? How long will he cry over the lost? Forever. It's one of the concept or one of the consequences. John eleven thirty three, uh, Matthew twenty six thirty seven, twenty six thirty eight, twenty six thirty nine. Those are all verses where Christ and God and God is crying. John eleven thirty three, eleven thirty five, eleven thirty eight. 2 Peter 3.9, Luke 19, 8-10. Many more than that. I can't get them all in here and still make it happen in less than 15 minutes, which is the usual time I have to do one of these lectures. Sometimes I go past that. Most of the time, I go past that. Absolutely right. Well, you have eliminated uh, Psalm uh, uh, 36, 5 through 7 because his judgments are amazing. And is this amazing? Follow you go and you go different directions. Boom. That's amazing. That's astonishing. That's incredible where we all marvel and give him glory. Is that what we're, what we're saying here? Does that fit at all? It does not. Okay, we have the same problem, the same question problem. If he's the one who causes unbelief, then the weeping is not genuine. And what have you said about him again? He said he's a phony. Why would God be showing his sorrow if there was never any hope for those who were created for eternal torment? What does again, what does this accuse Jesus Christ of? If if irresistible grace is a dreadful horror, as John Calvin believed and said, then what are you, how are you describing Christ? You're calling him a dreadful horror. I would be, I'd be reluctant to do that. You cannot take the dreadful horror away from the person who conceived it. And it is a position of Calvinistic thought that God conceived this dreadful horror. What is said of the character of God? The atheistic evolutionist philosopher, to quote Christopher Hitchens, said this, God is a congenital lying psychopath. Well, guess what? He's agreeing with a certain position. This is, this is identical, again, to Exodus 17, 1-7, Numbers 23-6, and 21-5-6. And what a belief... What have you done to belief? How much belief? If there's no belief, because there's no will, then how many scriptures do you have to get rid of? How many songs you got to get rid of? You know, wonderful, great hymn songbook. The, the, the other, no, the not other Daniels gave me. I have to be careful. There's, there's the other Daniel. And there's the not other Daniel. Uh, these are wonderful things. Why do we sing? Why don't we do anything? And the answer would be because you're predestined to do it and you can't help but do it. You have no choice. Whatever you do has been chosen. You see the circular tail logic. No matter what I do to say that I might have something that's always transferred into where you never had it and you just think you do, it's an illusion. Identically, the position of the physicists who deny God's existence even though they should never do that. Max Planck didn't do that. Where am I? Um, why is there belief? Genesis 15, 6, Romans 1, uh, uh, 16 through 17, Romans 4, 3 through 4, and Galatians 3, 1 through 9. 
What is the impact of irresistible grace on belief? And therefore, what is the impact of irresistible grace on unbelief? Can irresistible grace coexist with belief and unbelief? Can it happen? You have to X out everything in the Bible that is referring to belief. Why does God tell Israel, Joshua 21.15, to choose him? Because he does. If Israel has no capacity to choose, again, Joshua 25.15, if they have no capacity to choose and no reason, therefore, to choose Christ, how does the rejection of his messiahship, the rejection of Christ's messiahship by the nation of Israel, that's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, Matthew 12, 31 through 37. How do you fit that with irresistible grace? Am I time, am I time up? Oh, gosh, I'm way, I'm just screaming along here. Likewise, like I got Deuteronomy 30:19. God sets before Israel life and death, blessings and curses. Therefore, choose life that both you and your seed may live. That's what he says. Choose life. And what's more, life and death set before humanity. That's back to Genesis 2:9, right? That's Genesis 2:17. Deuteronomy 30:19 is a repeating of Genesis 2:9, Genesis 2:17. That's the tree of life, the tree of certain death, put before in the garden, put before the. Adam and the woman in the garden. It repeats itself in Deuteronomy 30:19. Why would God instruct Israel to choose life if the ability to do so is impossible? And the Hebrew word here unquestionably, without dispute, without controversy, is the word choose. Christ, Jesus, God. Christ is God. Jesus Christ. The, the, he's God. Oh, Over and over and over again, Jesus Christ, God himself in the flesh, the word made flesh, commands mankind to follow him. Follow me. Why would he say, why would he order us to follow him if we have no choice? It makes no sense. It's a waste of words. He says, believe me. Believe in him. Seek after me. Obey Repent from unbelief. Ask. None of those words fit with irresistible grace. Now we also, uh, at Exodus, we see this at Exodus 19.5. God says, now if you, and again, if, if, you explain to me how a word like if comports. If you obey me fully and keep my covenant, you will be my treasured possession. The Hebrew word im is overwhelmingly translated if. How can there be an if? Yeah. All of these commandments are under the, under the umbrella of the word if. All of these commandments are meaningless if angels and humanity are automatonic robots, even even so with the animal kingdom. Did God create automatonic biological machinery from top to bottom? We're no different than the ant or the tapeworm or the starfish or the jellyfish or whatever you want. We have no capability. The only thing different is our air exchange structure. We have a spinal column and a brain. Matter. But we have no capacity to utilize any of it fruitfully in any way. Okay? We have yet to investigate the phylums, but we, but we will soon. Is it your view, and this is a, this is a general question to anybody that might have this, or, is it your view that God, hundreds of times, and yes, there are thousands of verses that's going to testify, that there is that he gave will. Do you do you believe that hundreds of times that he just spoke gibberish? It was kabuki theater. Everything is a gigantic hoax. Because we think we have free will. Did he know that we would think we have? He he doesn't give it to us, but he gives us the the possibility. Or no, I'm sorry, let me put it this way. He doesn't give us the free will, but we are allowed to think we have it. Does that make any sense? It doesn't make any sense. Ultimately, why would Christ be crucified, entombed, resurrected, and again preached to the imprisoned angels, ascend and return if nothing is at contest, if nothing is at stake? If there is no issue, it's just 
predisposed. Remove will and you have a catastrophic mess that ensues. So were they both wrong, Calvin and Jacobus? John and Jacobus. Were they both wrong? Mm, yeah, yes. And no. It was 450 years ago and they saw dimly Remember, Daniel says at the end of his, of, his, of his book that at the end of the age, we're going to know things. Calvin and, and, uh, and Arminius, uh, they saw dimly at 1 Corinthians uh, 13, 12. I always want to name a dog dimly. So I go around and say, do you see dimly? They had incomplete data. This is the blind men evaluating the elephant thing, Right? The blind men, they, one, one group of the blind men, three groups of blind men, they touch the side of the elephant, they think he's a wall. The other group grabs a hold of the tail, they're convinced he's a snake. The third group gets a hold of the tusk and they think he's some kind of skeletal being. Okay? Uh, humanity has always had this impulsive uh, propensity to uh, claim absolute truth with insufficient information. That's what we do. We say we have the absolute truth, but we don't have all the information. We, of course, again, here comes Goodell, right? Goodell. Uh, incompleteness. We, we have incompleteness, and yet we draw conclusions and we trumpet them as absolute truth. Uh, be, be a little bit less enthusiastic. How can a finite created thing, which is us, Comprehend the omniscient, infinite, timeless mind of God? The answer is no. You can't. No. Calvin and Jacobus attempted to divide and dissect the two birds. That's what they were trying to do. Can't dissect the two birds. Can't do it. This is where two birds Mindy fits in, right? See how I... It's amazing. It's amazing. Infinity cannot be divided. Infinity is complete. Everything else, everything else is incomplete. We cannot know the truth. What can we do? We can't know anything because we don't have completeness. So what can we do? We can only believe the one that does have it. So we can only believe truth. John 14.6. John 11.25. What is belief? Is it willful? Obviously it is. The Bible I submit is definitive. No equivocation from the word of God himself. Believing is an act of will. Choosing is as is un, uh, not choosing, or is as choosing belief, or as opposed to uh, choosing unbelief. You can choose both, either one. You, you get to choose one. It's also a willful choice, which is why the system of salvation is. And this is the, the system of salvation. Who decided this? God. He made a choice, didn't he? Because he can. The system of salvation, the choice of the Creator God, He chose this method. He chose this belief system. This is the one that works. Nothing else will work. Only this. He included willfulness, willfulness in it. I suppose. Why don't we believe Him? He says it over and over again in the Bible. Why not believe Him? Why don't we trust and obey and desist from the futility of attempting to reconcile omniscience and infinity and timelessness and completeness and omnipresence and omnipotence with the ability of humanity to believe? They resolve only through one way. We trust it that he did a good job. That he's got it right. Because he's loving kindness, because his judgment is perfect, because he's faithful, he's righteous. And so we believe him. Trust and belief. And obviously the system, the process of salvation is perfect and good and God is perfect and always good, omnibenevolent. There is no sin or evil in Christ in the triune Godhead. Never have a thought otherwise. Reject everything that devolves into God is evil. Just get rid of it. It can't be true. Be satisfied with belief, knowing that the astonishing mind of God has selected it and has made it work. Now, we don't have enough information and we may never have enough information to know how it works. We would have to get inside the mind of God. Well, we are inside the mind of God, but we don't get to wander around. 
Okay? I cannot overemphasize the greatness of grace and belief. Do your best to adhere to those of these. Flee from all things that diminish grace and belief. So, how long will this take? How much work did I put in the Armenian position? Hardly any, did I? Guess what? It is just as big a mountain as the Calvinistic view. Uh, and I barely begun. Our feet are dry. No wet on the feet. There's not a drop of water. You can feel free to boom in two birds. It's not my fault. Lastly, Genesis 9 and Genesis 15. Both Noah and Abraham, boy, they were amazing guys. Noah was told, build a boat. What did he do? He built a boat. Do you think he asked why? Build a boat, Noah. Well, I'm... I'm no reason to have a boat. I'm in the middle of the desert here or wherever he was. He was saying there's no water around him. Build a huge boat. Oh, why? Why do I want a big boat? Just do it. You're going to need it. And Noah believed him and built a boat. We see the belief manifested in the boat. You're going to build a boat like that. You've got to really believe it. And Abraham, how can I know that I will always be saved? I will have eternal security. How will I know that? Well, because you take me and you believe me. And the result is everlasting salvation. There's where Genesis 9 and Genesis 15, those are everlasting covenants. Those are eternal covenants. Okay, I could keep going, but I'll just stop right there. I've got to be close, huh? Okay, cool, man.